Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 24 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members' magazine, Unfiltered. We're kicking off 2021 with a real treat, an extended chat with the writer and Society member, Irvin Welsh, best known for his groundbreaking work, Train Spotting. With Burns Night approaching on the 25th of January, it felt as good a time as any to find out Irvin's thoughts on everything from the Bard's influence on his own work, his personal whisky journey, Scotland as an exotic location for fiction, and how train spotting helped put Leith on the literary map. I settled down with Irvin in front of the fire at the vaults with a lineup of society drams to see where the conversation flowed along with the whisky. I don't know how much you know about society whiskies in general. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of... Um, it's funny because I don't really know a lot about whiskey. Right, OK. Um, and uh, about whiskey in general. I've never been a whiskey drinker. I've kind of... Um, um, it's, I got into... I used to be a beer drinker and then I got into wine um, big time because I had to do this wine column um, for a, a magazine called Marmalade that was run by a friend of mine in London, Kirsty Robinson. She formed this, she started up this magazine. She had an idea that she would get people to write about stuff they knew nothing about. Okay. So, <clears throat> had me writing on wine. They had um, a guy who was an ex-football kind of hooligan in London writing about opera. We sent him to Sadler's Wells. There was uh, a girl who was like a Sloan Ranger kind of sort of um, debutante. She started writing about football. And um, she's now a Coventry City season ticket holder and does kind of stuff for Sky and all that kind of stuff. She's absolutely obsessed with football and she's never been to a game before. Um, and it was, just, it was great because it's you know it was like everybody staggered in very very much blind. Yeah. And um, I mean I got sent all I got used to get sent all this wine. It was fabulous. You know? yeah, so yeah. I got really I got a taste for wine. But no whiskey until until more recently. Until recently, yeah, uh. yeah. I mean it's like it's one of these things that. Um, it's something when you get past a certain age, people seem to seem, seem to get in back into whiskey again. Yeah. It's almost like, um, you know, you always think when you're young, kind of, when I was young, I thought it was, a, it was an old guy's drink, basically. And I think, oh, I can't really be bothered with this. And then it's like, um, you see all your mates when they get past 40, they just start suddenly having wee drams <laughs> here and there, all the play, you know, it just... And drinking better stuff as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that's the difference, I think. You know, we all have experience mm. when we're younger drinking fairly rubbish whiskey or, yes. you know, snaffling something from the Yeah, I mean, grouse and, so, you know, and yeah. sort of bells and, and sort of and, these, and it's, yeah. all these blended ones. Well, are, it's, it's, it's almost enough to put you off, I think, sometimes, and it can take a wee while to come back around to what whiskey yes. is, is Well, I mean, I, get, you know, I got into, you know, the, the sort of... Um, the kind of, you know, the, the P.T. Island stuff. Yeah. All that, you know, that was kind of... Well, I thought I'd start off here with uh, this. We, we do 12 flavour profiles with mm -hmm. the society. And, you know, we don't put distillery names on the bottles, but we give people some kind of guidance in terms of the, the flavour profile. Right. Uh, and there's this colour code which can kind of help you to navigate the bottles because otherwise it's a, a fairly anonymous code which, you know, it doesn't tell you immediately what the distillery is, but there's a reference there and this this one's 
113 refers to this is the 113th distillery that the society has bottled a whiskey from. Right. And the 15 is this is the 15th cask that we've bottled from that distillery. Right. So there's some information there, but you kind of need to you know you need to know your way around it to decipher it. It's, it's a wee bit cryptic. Uh, so there's that information, but the colour refers to the flavour profile, and this one is uh, a light and delicate. So we've got 12 flavour profiles, uh, but I think in terms of starting off your 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 session or whatever it is you're doing. It's a, it's 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 not a big peaty bomb. It's not right. a big sherry bomb. It's something that's quite quite light and delicate. Not too heavy in the palate. Quite fresh, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's good. I like it. And that's uh, it's a space cider. So you get it gets some information in the bottle. Refill barrel ex bourbon. Uh, so it's not taking a huge amount of influence from a different cask. It's fairly subtle, uh, nice and sweet as well. I think. Mm. Mm. Quite easy drinking, I would say. Yeah, I mean, you could you could go nuts on that. So. But even uh, what's that? Sixty-one point six percent. So uh-huh. it's undiluted. It does pack a punch. My friend does this. I don't, I don't even know which whiskey she uses. Probably not a very good one. But um, she she kind of has this beekeeping place. She has this kind of bees down in Wiltshire, uh-huh. and she makes this kind of honey whiskey. Mm. And. Um, it's very, very subversive drink because you can't really, you can't really taste any alcohol in it. You just yeah, yeah. Have this nice kind of quite fiery honey, basically. You know, and you, you can just throw them back, and you really and you feel them. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it was a friend that introduced introduced you to the society. Yeah, well, I came, well, I'd, um, I'd heard about it, and um, my friend Tay, who was the um, who's a Mohican guy, was telling me about. It. He's like this professor of indigenous studies all over. You know, goes all over the world. And um, he says, "Is there an authentic whiskey place that I can, you know, that I can visit?" I said, "Well, we'll try the one because you know I'm from Leith, obviously. So said, we'll try the one in Leith. I've only been in it a couple of times with pals and all that, but um, I'm sure they'll they'll let us in, and you know, if not, we can join. Basically, like you know. So we did. We came down, and he says, "Well, um, I'll treat you to membership. You know, so he bought a membership for me, and." Um, we spent um, a few hours here tasting the whiskey. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so I've been there a few times since. So you'd so. say in terms of your kind of your whiskey journey, if I can put it that way, it's fairly early days or Yeah, I mean it's like um I'm you know um it's I'm kind of this I'm you know, I'm a I'm a bit um I'm not a great referencer of anything with food or alcohol, you know, and that's uh, one of the reasons I got into wine so much right in that column was I was forced to research it and I was forced to kind of get, you know, and yeah, to yeah. take an interest in that way. And basically, I'm just one of these people that uh, I kind of rely on other people's guidance. Basically, you know, I'll, I'll kind of, um, if somebody puts something down in front of me and explains to me what it is, you yeah. know, I do so much travelling and, you know, I, I, get to, I get the opportunity to sample loads of great food and loads of great wines and and kind of local drinks everywhere I go, you know. So I tend to not really, um, I tend to put myself in other people's hands yeah. with these things. Like, yeah. Well, it's not a bad way to go about it. Yeah. yeah. Especially at the society, yeah. I think that's the thing. We get a lot of people coming in and, you know, they're <coughs> starting off with their whiskey experience. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I recommend to anyone to come in and do an actual tasting. And it's like, I suppose it's like doing a wine tasting or anything else. When you've got someone explaining a variety of whiskies and kind of talking you through them, then it kind of opens up this this whole world, I suppose. And it gives flavor. it a context as well, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, but do you do you have at this point any kind of preferred style of whiskey that you go for? No, really. I mean, I kind of like you know the, another you know the archetypal kind of um, Highlands, Islands, Lowlands. They're all you know they've got their own thing, but. Uh, <coughs> Whatever's there, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good approach. Uh, I mean, but you you do spend a lot of time either living internationally or travelling internationally as well. What does whiskey in Scotland mean to you as as a as a Scot abroad? I mean, I've found whatever I've been overseas, it's one of the first things that people. It's usually the first thing, you. like you know, kind of um, kind of whiskey, golf, and shortbread. And yeah. All that other, how, how do you, how does that sit with you? Gilts. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's I think it's. Um, it is a national drink and it's a major export and it's a big part of our culture. It's gone from you know from sort of way back. You know the whole um, the whole Burns thing is an international sort of culture. He's an international kind of poet of the the, the world and it's like whiskey is so much of a part of his kind of sort of repertoire. And it's just you know it's just something that's there and, and ubiquitous. And it's like um, because I've not been kind of massively exposed to it at any at any level, it's quite interesting for me to see the. The reverence that people have for it, you know, it is, it is a, a, a huge thing. It's a huge defining thing for Scotland. Yeah. Do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I think with your work, it's all about an authenticity in terms of the portrayal of Scotland, and you know, obviously, a massive division between that kind of urban, you know, gritty, real life Scotland, and then the, the shortbread tin, the Highlands, the stags, and all that stuff. Uh, do you think do you think Scotland's representation with whiskey is does it does it do the country any favours or have we moved on from those kind of images? I think you know I mean it's like there's a there's a whole um, there's a whole shift in landscape. I mean it's like kind of um, you know you've got like kind of Burns saying like whiskey and freedom going together. You know the romanticisation of, of whiskey. You you have McDermott's kind of a drunk man looks at the thistle. The kind of you know the sort of um, the, the you know the, the you know the horrible abyss of kind of alcoholism and sort of you know so so you have all these so I, I think it has a huge kaleidoscope and it's represented um, it's represented all the um, the the sort of intricacies of Scottish culture all the, the the positives and all the negatives and I think you know so so it is a proper national drink basically in that it, sense yeah I think but one of the things that interests me and it's it goes back to the founder of the society you know he. He kind of stumbled upon uh, whiskey straight from the single cask, so it was it was undiluted and it was unchill right. filtered and it was it was nothing had happened to it. it basically, came from the cask into the glass, uh, and he he'd never come across anything like it. And I think so much of what we were drinking certainly back then was blended whiskey and it was all diluted, uh, and it might even have been you know coloured in some way, uh, and it was made for easier drinking. And I think we've kind of rediscovered a, a more authentic whisky, which is which has not been tampered with right, so much, right. you know. So I think maybe we've moved on a wee bit in terms of appreciating that the kind of the, the real spirit of uh -huh. what it is, rather than something that's been adulterated, maybe for easier drinking for mass market appeal. Right, you know, I right. quite like it. With you know, it's a wee bit rougher, a wee bit more challenging. Yeah, you know, it's not at the edges yeah. taking off it. But, well, uh, I did like that one. I have to say. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, good. Let's. It was very, very, kind of very smooth and easy, drink, easy to drink. This is uh, something very different. I think this is from our deep, rich, and dried fruits flavour profile, which is very often something which has been matured 
in a sherry cask or some kind of wine cask. So generally, uh, a, I know, a, a very different colour of whiskey first, yeah. first and foremost, you know. You well, can, it says death by chocolate. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, it has got a, it's, it's a much different colour to the, to the... Death by chocolate cake, 13 years old, and this is an ex Oloroso sherry, but so... Right, yeah, you, it's got that. So you can tell it's picked up the, mm -hmm. the kind of raisins, the nuttiness. Yes. Uh, yes. I just, it's, it's like, you know, as people say they don't like whiskey, and it's like, well, what yeah. kind of whiskey have you been drinking? <laughs> yes. Because there's this there's huge variety. Hmm. Yeah. It's like a different drink, isn't it? It is, it's very, very different. I mean, this feels much to me. It's almost like if somebody put that in front of me and said that this is whiskey, I wouldn't kind of quite believe them. I would think this is like yeah. um, this is like some kind of rum or something else. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Like, is, is a kind of Jamaican kind of sort of Ex you know, exactly. It reminds me very much of um, the rum that I was drinking in Kingston. It's got that sort right. of um, yeah. It's got you know, it has got that. I think even in a blind tasting, sometimes you could put a glass of rum down next to a whiskey. And even even like a cognac maybe or a, a, you know a, yes. one of those brandies yes, very much yeah uh, and you know you could be struggling to tell them apart. I could you know, I could easily you know could you, you could easily serve as a cognac. Mm. Yeah. Yep. For me, it's got it those kind of brandy notes. That after dinner, sort of yeah. uh, digestive kind of thing going on. Yeah. There. Ideal Christmas drink, and I think that one. I think it is actually. Yeah. Death by chocolate cake. Uh, what, who's, which, which is the distillery? The man? distillery is uh, Blair Athol. Right. So Highland Distillery. Yep. So we don't really talk that's about... That's a very interesting drink. We don't really talk about the distilleries. So, you know, we, we, we keep it a kind of... Keep it a wee bit of a mystery. Yeah. But, but everyone always wants to know, so, mm -hmm. you know, and you can go online and find out easily enough. It's just one of these things that it's 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 cryptic, but it's not exactly a, a state secret. Mm -hmm. uh, and people still want to know. But the, but the idea for us is that you come in and and you look at things and you're not influenced so much by where it comes from. Yes. It's more, yeah, it's just, more about the emphasis on the flavour. You're just going to get into the taste. You're That's what it's all about. You're going to get into the taste without... Um, Kind of being, you know, a little, uh, you know, the, the paraphernalia, the preconceptions mm. kind of mould how you feel about it. Well, you know, it's like some people say that, you know, they have a they have a bottle that they always go to their, you know, Highland you do, Park, you twelve get, year you old. Get, yeah, you get lazy. Your Lafroy or whatever, lazy. and yeah. uh, that that's it. But uh, I mean, Highland Park is a kind of go-to for most of my pals, like because it's like, you know, it's a really good, reliable whiskey. You can't go wrong. You, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. it's 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 good stuff. But the, the point for us is, you know, this is this is limited in terms of, well, this is from a, a bigger cask, it's from a butt, so it's one of 534 bottles that came out of that one cask. Right. And yeah. then that, once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. You know, there's you can't replicate it. Right. So there's no consistent, consistency in terms of the kind of bottle that you're going to get. Yes. There, there yes. might be, you know, similarities in terms of the flavour profile, but that's it. Once mm -hmm. it's gone, it's gone. So... You've got to appreciate it while it's yeah, there. Yeah, no, that's it. And you actually do feel kind of... Um, you feel quite kind of good about that, you know, that you've had something that nobody else has, or very few people are going to have. That's it. Yeah. I mean, by its, it's, by its very nature, it's a limited edition. Yeah. And everyone talks about okay. well, unique bottles and all this kind of stuff, but, you know, when you're churning out I like that millions of litres, they're not unique. I mean, I, I, but, but I like them both, but this guy's kind of got... Good, good. But yeah, you, you involved whiskey as a wee kind of storyline eh, in a decent ride. 
Was there not the pursuit of the rare whiskies? Yes, yes, it was. Like, yeah, there was. What, what made like, you think of the kind of? I think. Well, again, it's that. that it was a guy who was the. Um, I suppose he was a sort of kind of Donald Trump type kind of American um, mm. businessman character who was over and who kind who has that very kind of American kind of rich guy's conception about what Scotland does. It is golf and whiskey, and he wants to play loads of golf, and he wants to kind of. Uh, and he wants he wants this um he gets interested in whiskey and he kind of um he wants to collect this thing he doesn't particularly even like whiskey it's a you know it's a collection thing it becomes a, a right. status thing that he's, he's he's determined to get and uh, i like the idea of um these guys not really sort of um of not really valuing it you know yeah it, it sort of um, just a commodity just another drink for them, you know, in, in the pub and mixing it up with the crappy stuff that they have on there. I mean, it's, it was based partly on uh, a friend of mine, her um, her grandfather who who died, and she, and he was um he was a kind of a top kind of dermatologist, sort of top surgeon, and uh, he had a lot of money. And he one of the things that he left her in his will was this collection of wines. He had this collection of really vintage wines. And she had these collection of vintage wines, but worth about, I think about 40 or 50 grand. Yeah. You know, it was a big cellar, you know, big kind of boxes of them, you know. And um, we were in our flat in Easter Road, and she's kind of, and she's saying, well, I'm going to get this wine valued and I'm going to sell it and stuff, you know. I said, okay. She goes, but we'll have to open one bottle, basically, to, to taste how this goes on. You know what's coming you next, know, like, you know, so we opened the bottle. And uh, there's the three of us just sitting there um, and uh, drinking this wine. And my God, it was the most incredible wine I've ever tasted in my life. It was just, it was nectar. It was the nectar of the gods and all that, you know. And we're sitting back and with them. And we're saying, well, you know, she started talking about her granddad and all that, how much she enjoyed his wine, how much she loved that. You know, she said, I'm sure he'd want us to open one more. <laughs> so we, um, we opened, the next one we opened, the wine was the the wine had, had gone you know had gone off had kind of gone into vinegar. It was just you know we couldn't do that. So we opened another one, and then we got this was really good. But then it was like um, we thought let's just cool it, and um, we got a taste for wine. So we went down to Victoria Wines and got a couple of half decent bottles of wine and just had them you know and all that. And it was like, and then before we knew it, we were wired into all the rest of this wine. You know the, the you know it's like we've got. Uh, and then she panicked, she goes, oh my God, I've just drank kind of 20 grand's worth of <laughs> grandfather's inheritance and we could have been drinking a lot of nonsense, we could have been drinking anything by this, because by the time you get to a certain point, you could just, you know, you're like, ah, this is great wine, but it could be anything. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So, uh, so it was a terrible waste, basically, but, um, but yeah, I mean, and that was, that was, I think that was part of the engine for the story. Right, you know? okay. But at least you cracked the wine open and enjoyed it. Well, we did. We enjoyed it. But we, I think I, I think after that first bottle, we would have enjoyed anything. That was the one that we, just, we should have stopped after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, I mean, one of our problems is people buy the whiskey and they never drink it, you know? And to, to us, that's a tragedy. Yes, that, yeah. That you've a got, bottle yeah. just becomes a commodity and people might just punt yeah, it's it. Yeah, like some the, kind of ornament to it. Yeah. yeah, or just an investment yeah. to, to, yes. to somehow well, that was make the thing, money that, off. That was what was kind of getting at with us. You know, it's like the, the, the great thing is that um, ultimately it's, it's not there as an investment. It's there to be drunk, yeah. basically. Like, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Um, 
I think, you know, this, the, the innocence of the character who just, oh, well, here we go, you know. And that's what it's there for, basically. So you didn't do any specific whiskey research for the book, or...? I didn't really, no. I mean, I, I kind of, I talked to a couple of whiskey heads, basically. Yeah. But I, I, it was fun kind of making up my own distillery and my own brands and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Right, well, this is something else, Ir Irvin. Uh, we put, like, our extra special bottles, I suppose, older expressions or something maybe came from a a closed distillery or something uh, extra rare, we put it on a black label and uh, we call it the Vaults Collection because this is where we are at the Vaults and it's our, our spiritual home. So this is something a wee bit special, uh, 27 years old uh, from Speyside. So right. let's try a wee bit oh, of this one. And we just call this flavour profile old and dignified, which actually doesn't tell you anything about what it tastes like, it just tells you that it's old and a bit special. Yeah. So, this is, I thought you might like the name of that one as well, actually. What's it called? Tripping in the Blue Peter Garden. Oh, my God, this is fabulous. <laughs> how about that? It's funny how they just get, they get more and more out there with, uh, with the descriptions of things. Either. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a good one. You can take whatever you want. So, uh, I mean, that's got a nice, a nice balance to it, doesn't it? Mm. You know what I like about it? It's like the on the palate, it, just, it burns. You. This is going to go burn all the way down. It just, you know, the the sting evaporates. Yeah. Because, you know, it just goes. And yeah. It's like you still, but you, but you've got the taste lingering. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you can always taste aging of whiskey like that mm -hmm. you know you, you get some sens sensational young whiskies and even now distilleries are re releasing three-year-old whiskey and you know it's it's drinkable stuff mm -hmm. but you can't mess around with that yeah that, it's so smooth that's uh, that's something special Gosh, yeah dripping in the blue peter garden tell me about uh leith Irvin, you know, you're, you're here, I guess it's your, your old stomping ground. You, you, you did, you were born in Leith, you, but I, I don't know born how much time Leith you spent and then, Yeah, born in Leith and kind of um, moved when I was four years old to Pilton to the prefabs and then on to the Masonettes and Muir House and then back into Leith, um, kind of sort of, um, you know, well, down to London and then when I came back from London I moved back right. into Leith. Okay. Um, at Wellington Place, which is actually where I wrote Trainspotting, okay. um, just up to the road there on the links. Ah. And then um, kind of um, back down to London, and I kind of planned to, uh, when I moved back, well, I didn't move back, but I, can't, uh, I bought a place here. And um, I bought a place in the new town, which always feels a bit, um, was a bit shabby of me, a bit, a bit, selling, out, a bit selling out of me. I should have, I should have, brought, I should have actually brought a place uh, in Leith, but I think the thing is that um, I wanted somewhere where I'd be able to write. When I come up here and be able to write, yeah. I wouldn't have got any peace. Not be in the middle like, of the you know, craziness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have got any peace. But uh, you know, I've kind of um, I'm down here a lot because uh, I kind of I kind of drink down here. I've got like in the Alhambra and the Central Bar and. Um, Sort of places like that, you know, places like that. I'm down for the football for Hibs. Uh, I've got, uh, 
I go to the Dockers Club quite a lot. I'm doing the draw there on Saturday. Right. And uh, I go to Leith Victoria Boxing Club as well. You know, I've kind of been going there for years. So yeah. it's like, um, so that is, I still feel very much a part of things here. Yeah. You know, but um, it's, it's a recreational place for me rather right. than a, a work place. Like, sure, you know, sure. So. Were, you, were you aware of this place when you were yes, growing up and very or, or much. when you came back to it? Yeah, very much. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, you know, it's like, I think, when, when did it open up here? This was 83. 83, yeah. I mean, it had something? been a, a, a spirits merchants before that, J.G. Uh -huh. Thompson. Right. And then the society, when, they, when we were founded, they bought this place and turned it into a member's room after that. Well, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm so glad that they've got this place here because it's, it's like, um, if this was up in the city centre, it just wouldn't be as much fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's something kind of... There's something, there's something cool about, you know, when, when we open up again and everything gets back to normal, um, I always have people up at Hogmanay from London or from America or from Europe and or, and always at the festival I have people there. So it's it's great to have somewhere like this to be able to take them. Yeah. Like, you know, to be able to show them a bit of, you know, that um, the Leith is new. You know, it's like the, there's a... A diversity in Leith, and you can see it down the shore. They can see it up Leith Walk, and you know the, the central and all that. It's a very, um, it's an interesting community. It's, yeah. it's all you know. It's, it's always had that. Even when I was a, a kid, um, we used to go. My dad used to take me to to Hares, which was like uh, the old North British Hotel above the the Leith Station, Leith Central Station, um, and it was quite a. It was all kind of what it was where. Working guys would kind of get dressed up and you know in the in the finery basically, yeah. and he would get this big kind of three course meal served with the waiter the waitresses with the kind of black and you know and the sort of frilly white kind of hats and all that stuff. It was really old school, you know. Yeah. It was, but it was it was kind of quality, and even then, you know, you kind of was a sort of um, it was just a, a a hint of the old kind of mercantile wealth in the area and the way that. Um, like working guys who, you know, they worked at Rob's or they worked on the merchant, you know, as welders and stuff, or they worked on the merchant fleet or they worked in the docks. Yeah. Um, they would kind of their day to go out and to, to, to live it up a bit. Yeah, yeah, their special night out. Yeah. But, I mean, there was so much whiskey in, in this area as well, with the warehouses. The, the bonds. My mum worked yeah. in the bonds. Did she? Like, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think everybody, you know, just about every woman in Leith at the time has worked in the bonds at some time. Yeah, time massive like, whiskey yeah. connections. Yeah. And you still see it all, all around, you know, with the warehouses that have been turned into flats and, yes. and all the rest of yeah. it. But, you, you know, you, you must see, like, unbelievable changes in Leith. You know what? I mean, it's, it's funny because um, I think that... Um, everywhere I've lived, I've seen huge changes. I've been in the States for... Um, Ten years, and uh, you know, just moved back last year to permanently for, after ten years in America. And when things change in America, they just they just basically raise a city block and rebuild it within six within a few months, you know. And you go away, and I would come back here, and people say, "Oh, you must notice it's changed." Then I'll go back home to Chicago or to San Francisco, and the whole neighborhood has just been redesigned, yeah. you know. Within the time that I've been away, a few weeks I've been away, it's all different, you know. And I say, "Well, I don't really because." Um, Everywhere, you know, and you know, London's got so much more money pumped into it that it just things change there so quickly. Yeah. That um, this actually seems, you know, the, the pace of change here seems 
a lot slower because you know we are on the periphery of the UK economy, um, so things do don't aren't as dynamic. Yeah. You know, so it feels um, it feels more settled here. Yeah, and as you say, at least the vaults has survived for centuries. You know, yes. Depending yeah. on what part of the building, I think you, you you date it back to. I mean, actual cellars are said to be 11th or 12th century in this building, and then it's gradually been built up over the years. Uh, to I think the, the the most recent addition was in the 17th century. You know, the, the right. upper stories. So it's been around for a long, long time. It's a it's an amazing building, and that the half of it is uh, flats and all that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the 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 half on that side are, are private flats. Uh, and this is obviously our members' rooms, and we've got flats up the stairs which we let out to members as well now, right? So they can have a have a drink and then just stumble up the stairs. So yeah, stagger up. Yeah, so it's like a kind of a boutique hotel then. Yeah, maybe. pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So no, it's uh, well, we call it our spiritual home, but I think you know it's it does have that because of its history, it does have that kind of special feeling to it. Yeah. How how does it feel that you know? We're obviously we're just across from the banana flats, right? You know, we can see them out the window here, uh, and there's other like now iconic locations. But because of train spotting, you've put some of these places on the map. That, you know, you can take a tourist trail of, of Leith and Edinburgh based on the locations that were in the book and the film. How does that feel? <laughs> it's great. It's funny. I mean, it's like the banana flats. One of my my good pals is um, from the banana flats, like you know, and his girlfriend is actually from the fort. You know, and uh, and she's kind of she keeps saying to me, "Oh, I remember the fort. I remember this and the fort." And um, and he always says, "Look, the banana flats, a listed building. The fort, raised to the ground. <laughs> uh, rest my case." Yeah, <laughs> that's it. It's a listed uh, yes. historic environment, Scotland. Yeah. You know, it's brilliant. It's fabulous because uh, I remember actually the first. I think the first time I came down here, it was. Um, I was at this I was at this kind of function, and uh, this posh woman has said to me, um, she goes, uh, she goes, uh, I've just bought a place down here for my for my daughter. She was at the university. It's a nice, uh, it's in a tenement, but um, there's these big flats opposite. But are they, are they going to do anything about them? Do you think they'll take them down? <laughs> and uh, I said, Well, they probably will now. <laughs> no chance. But no, no, they're listed, so it's not, it's not worked out that way. No, not at all. Uh, but I mean, wherever you've been living, and obviously you've spent a lot of time in the states, and you, you know you've you've written from other places, but you often return to to Edinburgh as a location, and Leith particularly as a location. I like it. I mean, it's like you know what it is when you move around. You kind of think that um, when you see when you grow up in a place, you always think this is boring. I want to get out, you know. And you kind of you think that. Um, then when you travel and you go to different places, you realise that. Um, where you come from is actually it's actually quite exotic really people are quite kind of um, strange and weird and crazy in a good way and they, actually, and they, they have a, a kind of completely different way of looking at it and you, you grow up thinking you come from the most boring place in the world and then you, you actually realise that you come from the most quirky exotic place in the world like yeah. when you actually start to compare all these these things. Yeah, but you need that experience of being outside, yeah, yeah, yeah. looking back yeah. in to yeah, kind of appreciate definitely. that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but do, does, has your international experience given you a different perspective on Scotland as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, it's you know the, the thing that um, there's a sort of um, it's a, such a strange um, 
it's such a strange country in a way because you know the whole the the whole political kind of relationship with um, with England and London and you know and Europe and the rest of the world it's it's very strange it's not a it's not a usual relationship you know it's like a part of, you know it's a kind of a weird kind of state within a state now and then, you know it's become even more pronounced that since covid yeah um, and it's just a it's a, a very strange and unique kind of sort of um, kind of constitutional place but the uk is a very strange and sort of uh, unique place so you see all the quirkiness and eccentricities of it you know it's like um you know you you, you when you you, t you speak to people in america and you say well um I remember when the referendum was on, people were saying, well, are you guys, you, you guys are not independent already? You're ruled from London? Why, you know? They're going like, are you crazy? You know, so, why? Yeah. And I go, well, uh, and so you kind of, um, you start to see all these, all that kind of quirkiness, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a very unusual place. And I think that because, um, and I always saw it as a very mundane place when I was growing up. You know, it's like, yeah, this is boring. I can't wait to get out. It was a sort of, it was a punk rock era, and I wanted to just be in London as soon as I could. And yeah. uh, um, fortunately, I had relatives there, so I was able to do that and to, to go there. Uh, and but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's I'm always drawn to write to writing about here because I think because people are very. They are storytellers, you know, they're mm. natural storytellers. So you kind of, you can walk into a pub in, uh, in Leith and sit down beside somebody and um, you can walk out with enough material for a novel yeah. without even thinking about it. You know, you think, where, does it, where did they hear this from? Where did they hear that from? It's like, people just tell stories all the time, yeah. Well, I mean, I wanted to talk about, you know, your writing within the tradition of Scottish literature and, and Burns specifically, because, uh, you know, this will be going out in January. But, you know, th there is that Scottish literary tradition of, uh, you know, people having different faces, you know, or, or the, 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 I guess it's like the Jekyll and Hyde thing. Which, the duality which, is a yeah, huge the duality, thing in Scottish literature. I mean, the justified like, um, sinner. James Hogg's justified sinner, Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, and I think, you know, we're doing a, a thing uh, for the BBC on Burns now and uh, trying to find, trying to, to, to find a, a sort of... Um, a whole different way of telling his story and a whole different kind of slant of him as a person because uh, everything is about, you know, his poetry, his work, and, you know, and the, the sort of... Um, <coughs> the standard old kind of trajectory of Burns that, you know, he was a, a simple ploughboy in Ayrshire who became a, a international poet and he was left Ayrshire and he was fated by the Edinburgh bourgeoisie and he kind of drank too much and he died and all that. We're trying to completely subvert all that sort of storytelling trajectory and there's so much interesting and rich um, material about Burns' biography that hasn't been incorporated into popular culture. Right. You know, so we plan to do that. What kind of areas are you looking at then? Beyond the kind of the, the, the myths um, or the, the, the things that we know or we think we know already. Well, I mean, the things that you know, there's like there's a lot of um, interesting things about. I mean, it's it's, it's it's a matter of perspective, really. Um, and uh, if you think about what, what we know now, I mean, it's like uh, about COVID. Is you know, when our world shrank and we can't 
walk around as much. Uh, it must have been a bit like, you know, that for Burns basically. You know, you couldn't, you can't really, you know, you're you're in a, living in a farmhouse in Ayrshire, you can't really go anywhere. You know, so you're 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 stuck to the the, the village and maybe the next big town, and you know, you so you're you're kind of trapped basically. And I think you know the interesting thing about him, I think that. Um, when you see a guy who was the oldest of ten children and um, he lives in one room with his mother and father and siblings, you know, they're kind of basically knocking out siblings all the time, you know, so he's, you know, he's kind of growing up what we would now describe as inappropriately sexualized by that kind of experience, you know. Um, and then he goes out as a young guy into this world where he can't have access to the, the farmer's daughters, otherwise they're going to shoot him, basically. And you know, and his mates are the same. So he did his best. Though. Yeah, well, they have these. You know, this whole thing about the Masonic kind of drinking clubs and all that. Uh, and his early poems were very sexual in nature. You know, and it was basically um, it was basically a kind of pornography club for yep. young men. But you know, and that, so you see him. So you started to see him in different ways. You, you know, he, he started out as a pornographer. Yeah. You know, they all basically started out as pornographers, and he became, he became a poet as a result. He, he fell in love with, with poetry as a result, and poetry was almost like, um, it was almost like reality TV. It was a way you could become famous. Then you know, so it was, and he had that thing about him. He wanted to become famous. He wanted to get out of that environment. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, the, the, it, when you start to, to focus on these things, um, when you start to... The interesting thing about him was one of the things that I thought um, was, you know, that when, he, when Burns went to... When he went to Ayrshire and he had, uh, went to Irvine to the port and he had that kind of malady, uh, he was, and he had that kind of breakdown, I assumed it was some kind of venereal disease that had crept up on him for, you know, for kind of getting involved with the prostitutes in the port and all that. But um, apparently, when he died, they did a, they've done some retrospective tests of his DNA and established that he had no venereal diseases at all, basically. Um, but an interesting thing that's actually in the Robert Crawford um, biography is that... Um, he took Peruvian bark to, to cure his malady, uh, which came off the ships, uh, which is DMT, okay. basically, you know, which is like kind of, you know, it's the most powerful sort of um, drug known to man, you know, it's like it takes you back into this, um, it's uh, the pineal gland, you know, but the, before death is opened up with DMT and you, you, you don't hallucinate as such as you, you're actually transported into a different reality. So. You can see a lot of the um, the poetic visions, not as alcoholic DT visions, you know, as like you know the sort of the, the mad DT hallucinations of, of um, Tama Shanter and whiskey, but um, but as actual drug kind of induced sort yeah. of um, kind of you know sort of uh, stuff. So all this is opening up a different kind of um, a different thing for me with Burns, like yeah. I think I'd better pour you another whiskey. Yes. Well, we do one. This is, uh, you know, we usually work up towards a, a peated whiskey because, you know, it's a wee bit more overpowering on the palate. And if you have that too early on, then basically <laughs> it's going to ruin your palate for anything else. So Brilliant. This, so we've, this worked, we've worked up in kind of in yeah, terms of... Yeah, we've, um, we've, we've worked through the kind of flavour profiles from, from the light and delicate up to... This is, this is actually lightly peated, so it's not like a huge mm -hmm. blast of peat. 
but it's an and I love whiskey, uh, Cheshire Cat. Maybe it'll get, get us smiling. But uh, yeah, I'm sure it will. Like, but but quite sweet as well. Cheers. Cheers. Nice one. But again, it's like totally different. You know, you've gone from hints of Spain or France with the, the, the sherry whiskey, the wee bit of notes of cognac or even the rum that you mentioned. And then you're, you're, you're really back to Scotland, I think, with this one. Yes. Like a, a taste of the islands. I don't, I don't think that could come from anywhere else. It doesn't matter where no, you are it's, in the world. It's, 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 that's the soil, isn't it? That's a... I wanted to talk a wee bit more about the kind of language with, with Burns because, you know, I, how, how do you feel about that connection with the living, breathing language? And I think that's what struck me when I first read Trainspotting, that it was a bolt out of the blue and it was a language which you actually hear people speaking. It wasn't, you know, your, your standard English. It wasn't traditional English. And, you know, you can go back to Burns as, as, as part of that tradition. Do you feel a connection with, with Burns in terms of that kind of living language that you've used in your own work? Um... I'm gonna. I'm, I'm probably gonna. Maybe it's a wee bit controversial, but in some ways, uh, no, because um, I think that being a writer is a very, it's a very isolated process. Like you know, you're on your own, and you're trying to. Um, you're not. You're not really. I mean, I'm one of the kind of writers who tends to let the subconscious do most of the heavy lifting. So it's like I'm not really sure where all these sources come from, and obviously, it's like. Um, if you look at all the, the influences that someone like me must have had, I mean, Burns would be one of the biggest influences, and you know, there's no getting away from that because it permeates all aspects of Scottish culture. It permeates the ways that you know people express themselves, um, and he comes from that whole tradition, that whole sort of um, that kind of sort of all, that Noxian tradition of universal education, basically. If, uh, and I think that um, the the whole kind of um, I mean, it's like even in this. I mean, when I started writing, every single writer from Scotland, from uh, you know, from Alistair Gray and James Kelman and Janice Galloway in the West, the people like um, uh, Barry Graham and Kevin Williamson and Duncan McLean, and um, they all came from a council scheme, basically. Uh, whereas every single writer I knew in England all came from Oxbridge. You know, I think there's something. You know, so that whole. Noxian democratic tradition kind of continues right through the the, the, the culture, um, so I think yes, I mean I think you know there is an there is an influence, but I'm not aware of it in terms of the construction of anything in terms of the linguistic constructions because you're so involved in the process of actually writing something that you don't really reflect on what your influences are when you're doing it. It's such an immersive and overpowering experience to be lost in a, to lose yourself in a world where you're trying to get all these intonations and cadences and sort of, you know, so you can't really, you're not thinking about anything that's happened in the past, really. But did you feel any pressure to compromise your use of language to, to, to put possibly appeal to a wider audience or were you very, I wasn't really thinking very determined? No, I mean, I thought um, when the first book came out, I thought, you know, it's going to sell to a few people in Edinburgh and they're going to love it and vibe on it and maybe... Um, and then, then it, you know, and then it, um, the London Cognoscenti kind of got into it. I thought, well, you know, they would because it's druggy and it's stuff, you know, so they'll, you know, they'll enjoy it and all that. And then... Um, 
it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the the, the book kind of got passed around the prisons, and everybody liked it there. And you know, and then the um, the um, the play kind of pulled people in, and then you know, the, it kind of went national, and then the the film went international, and it just kind of it went on and on. And um, but I didn't really have any sort of um, kind of big ambitions to. I mean, I, I thought I would be uh, somebody who wrote the occasional book and had a, a job doing something else, basically. That would be, you know, I would just do that for my own enjoyment. You know, I never yeah. thought I would become um, a kind of, if you, for want of a better term, like, you know, a professional, like, full-time kind of author. You know, certainly not an international one. Did you think your use of language might have limited your success, or was it just that you, yeah, you, you, I don't, you, you don't, don't really I care? Didn't, um, I didn't. I didn't think it would enhance it. I mean, it's like it probably now it probably wouldn't. You know, the, things change very quickly, and um, a novel like that probably wouldn't be published now. So um, it would, you know, you'd have to self-publish it, and then somebody might pick it up. Uh -huh. And you know, um, but uh, it wouldn't. You know, it wouldn't be nowadays the way things are. You kind of um, you write into marketing holes, principally in genre. You know, it's like kind of. Uh, thriller, crime, romance, sci-fi and all that, you know, and it doesn't really fit into any of these yeah. holes, like, you know, so um, it would be very difficult for um, for something that is very kind of um, retail dominated to find a space for that now. Yeah, I was wondering though, because, you know, I just read Shuggy Bane and it obviously won the Booker Prize and that book to me feels like it's following a tradition that you mentioned Kelman obviously in, in Glasgow and Alistair Gray maybe maybe less with the language with Alistair Gray but you know the, the representation of Glasgow uh, and there you've got a book following in that tradition and winning the Booker Prize and it does seem like there's been this progression where we can tell these stories and we can tell them in something approaching our real language rather than having to put them into standard English in order it's to a, find yeah, an audience. It's interesting that it did win because uh, I thought that almost um, this had gone now, you know, it had been a passing fashion that had been absorbed, but um, it seems to have embedded more into the, you know, the, the canon of what is acceptable now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, it's, I think it comes back to the whiskey, that, it, that there's, there's a, a kind of an approach which says we're not going to make any concessions with this. We're, we're not going to make it more easily palatable for a wider audience, and you can enjoy it in its natural state. And, for, and you know, in terms of your literature, I see that in the language that you chose to write in. You know, for the society, it's about you know bottling something without messing around with it in any way. I think you know what what is interesting to me is like uh, when it came out, it was. Uh, People enjoyed it very much because, like people from, like you know, like people from England and South Africa and America and Canada and Australia and all that, they found it a challenge, but they loved doing it. You know, they loved getting to you know 30 pages in, you know, the voices embedded in their heads, and then they were you know and they were shouting at each other in Scottish accents and all that, and calling each other Raggies and Gadgie and all that kind of stuff, and they loved it. They loved the challenge of that. Um, I think now we've moved into a completely different cultural kind of era, whereas um, I think now it would be very difficult for um, younger people from the same 
you know, from all these countries to get into it in the same way. I think they, you know, they tend to experience things more. Um, they'll get into the film, you know, and you know they'll, you know, or they'll get into, um, they'll maybe get into stage representations of it. But I think that you know the 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 reading of it, um, I think, is a bit challenging now. Yeah. You know, we'll be, we'll be, but again, that's another paradigm that might shift again, and people might want to go back into stuff. So, um, so yeah. So I mean, it's like so. That, I mean, that's why I, I kind of um, I spend as much time in um, TV production now as I do in books. You know, so that's just again, it's just a shifting way. That's how people digest novels now through long form TV. Yeah, yeah. It's, it always strikes me as remarkable that we, you know, coming round to Burns Night. And people gather to celebrate Burns, and we might not understand half of what the poems are about, or the language is challenging. Or people are going to gather at Hogmanay and sing Old Lang Syne, and if you ask them, well, what, what's that all about? And they're like, I'm not really sure, but it still feels good, it, it sounds good. Yeah, and they know that there's a, a vibe of togetherness about the whole thing. Yeah. You know? um, it, so, yeah, and it's become, you know, I mean, he's, he's written the world's national anthem. Basically, which is a bizarre thing to, for a Scot to be able to do, you know, yeah. for such a small place. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good claim to fame. The, the world, the world's most popular drink, uh, yeah. the world's most popular song. It is. It's crazy. Yeah. How does it feel? I'm, I won't take up too much more of your time, Evan. But how does it feel in terms of like taking you back to those early days where you've got this manuscript and you're thinking, well, okay, uh, I might get a few people, as you say, in Edinburgh to read this and get something out of it to something that's become like a worldwide phenomenon and then the film obviously came out of it and uh, has, be, has been a sh huge success. W what kind of trip is that for you? Um, it's, I think it's like, uh, you know, on a personal level, I think that, um, I you know, I like, you know, it's basically I liked um, the, the, the money that came with it and I enjoyed having money, basically. Uh, and I, you know, I made a lot of money out of it. And um, I didn't like the fame so much. The fame was a double-edged sword. That kind of because it beat you. I think you know it's like when you get when you discover that you can write and you want to do that. You think this is this is great. I finally discovered something that I can do, and I want to keep doing this. Um, and you become more of an author than a writer. You know, you have to go and promote the stuff, and you go. You have to do. You know, you 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 kind of travel and all that, which is brilliant in some ways. But in other ways, you just want to be sitting at a desk doing more uh, stuff. So it's a kind of double-edged sword, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's given me a life that I always sort of aspired to in a way, but never really thought I could have. You know, I tried through music to get to, to this point, but I couldn't sort of break past anything that was going to sort of be viable for me. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, um, it's kind of surprising, but it's not really... Uh, I think I was fortunate in a way that I'd, I kind of knew what I wanted. I knew how I wanted to, to live, basically. And I got to that point before I became really successful. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I was able just to do more of the same, you know, just, just to carry on writing. Uh, and that was, that was again, the, the real sort of gift of it, basically. Yeah, and that freedom to just pursue what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Very good. I've got to ask you on behalf of my pal Grant, who's a jambo, but don't hold it against him, but he's from Sight Hill. Uh, I told him I was going to be catching up with you. He wanted to know what your favourite bit of uh, Edinburgh slang was. Uh, his 
I should tell you, are Shan. And for, as, a, as a Ouija, I'd never heard Shan, but Shan means like something that's uh, yeah, crap, yeah. shameful, terrible, yeah. bad. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pure Shan that I wasn't allowed to do something. Uh, or Raj is his other one, uh, meaning just a bit, a bit of a nutter, a bit of a madman, right? Uh, any favourite of yours that you want to drop in? I mean, I like Raj as well. Um, and uh, because it is quite a. It's. Um, it's something that is, uh, it has, yeah, it's a number of different sort of um, connotations for it, but it's like, uh, but yeah, it's something, you know, it's like, it can be used in a very positive way or a very negative way, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> like, like some other words in, yeah. in Scottish. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Got to be careful, it's all about the context. Yeah. Uh, right, one more question. Uh, Renton famously said it's shite being Scottish. Is it, is it, would you think he would still say it's as shite being Scottish, or maybe less? No, shite? I mean I think he was, you know, he was, um, he was kind of going through that time. I think that's uh, that's been to me that's been the the healthy trajectory of um, Scotland's relationship with itself and with with England and the rest of the world. It's always been like um, it's gone from being like. Um, from uh, you know, from oh, you know, like when I was in the seventies, all actually was the English ambassadors. They've done this to us, and then it was like um, it moved on to like um, you know, um, you know, it, it's us. We've done this to ourselves. We're fucking the lowest to the low, and that's kind of the Renton era, basically there. And now it's moved on to more healthy. Well, it doesn't really matter who's done what to somebody. Let's just sort it out and make it a better kind of place and a better world which is a healthier kind of place to be. I think that's been the journey of um, Scotland, really. You know, in my lifetime, it's been a, I think it's been a positive one. Yeah, good stuff. Irvin, an absolute pleasure. Thank I'll you. Raise a glass. Thank I hope you. to see you yes. in the vaults again before too long. Cheers. Definitely. We'll drink to that. And many thanks again to Irvin for taking the time to chat and to share a few drams together. As always, there's much more reading online if you visit smws.com unfiltered with a new issue of our members magazine out on the first Friday of every month. Until the next time, cheers. Cheers.